down to the people and told them. This is the word of God. Hey guys, if we haven't met yet, my name's Hans. I'm one of the pastors here. It is great to see you here. Just want to say a special welcome to the parents who have just had kids in the last couple of weeks. The fact that you're here is so encouraging to us. And uh, if you fall asleep during this sermon, I don't mind at all. Just wanting to let you know about that. I totally get, we totally get where you're coming from. So we've been, oh, so many of us have been there. So I'm going to pray as you look at this passage and then we jump in. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, uh, we come to a passage that on, honestly for us, living in the 21st century is strange. A passage that uh, narrates events over 3,000 years ago and yet... You are the God that is going to speak through those events, through these words. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do that. Give us a great and mighty glimpse of yourself, one that stretches our minds, our hearts, to love you and live for you more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I read a couple of months ago that there is uh, a periods in life where people really grow up rapidly. And one of those periods in life is when they realise the teachers at school don't have it all together. And I can remember the exact moment when I realised that the, the teachers at my school didn't have their lives 100% totally together. I remember um, talking in science. I had a teacher named Mr. Nicholas, and there was a group of us. We were talking about what we're going to do with our lives, what we're going to do after school, that kind of thing. And um, we then turned to our teacher and we said, hey, Mr. Nicholas, um, when did you realise you wanted to be a science teacher? And he said, I'm not sure if I do. And, and we were taken aback. I mean, why wouldn't you want to teach such delightful children as us, right? And then, then we asked him, so what are, you, what are you going to do with your life? And he said, still trying to figure that out. And we were taken aback. And then he said, the two big things in life you've got to work out is, who am I and what am I going to do with my life? You guys have got to figure that out just as well as I do. And then for the rest of that day, that was the first period, for the rest of the day, we all asked our teacher, who are you and what are you doing with your life? And to our shock and horror, they looked at us blankly and they usually said, we don't know. I wonder if someone was to ask you, who are you and what you are doing? What are you doing with your life? What is your life about? How will you answer that? Because I actually think those are the two of the biggest three questions you have to ask of your life. Who are you and what are you doing with your life? And here's the third one. Who or what are you going to serve? You think about those three questions. If you think about those three questions, that really defines who you are on every level. Who are you? What are you going to do with your life? What are you aiming to do? And who or what are you going to serve? We could go through a bunch of different people and go, you know, this kind of person, they're serving this or that kind of thing. But I want you to think about who you are, what, you, what you're doing with your life. 
and who or what you are serving. In today's passage, we're going to see that God actually answers these three questions for his people Israel. He's going to tell them who they are, what they're meant to do, excuse me, with their lives, and who it is they serve. And if you are a follower of Jesus, this is not just God speaking to the Israelites 3,000 years ago. This is God speaking to you and telling you who you are, what you're meant to do with your life, and who you serve. So here's the three questions. If you haven't got the three points of my sermon, let me repeat them again. Who am I? What am I to do? Who do I serve? Now, now let's have a look at our first point. Who am I? Now, we've been looking at the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is about God getting glory for himself as he saves his nation, uh, saves the nation of Israel from the clutches of Egypt and gets them to serve him, gets them to be a nation. So if you want to think about the book of Exodus, just think of saved to serve. That's the whole book of Exodus. And and as we've been looking, we've been seeing in the first part of the book of Exodus that God has saved his people. And now they are at the foot of Mount Sinai. And if you remember, Moses really has come full circle because in the first few chapters of of, Exodus, Exodus, we, we meet Moses. And he comes to this very mountain. He meets God on this mountain. And God says, you are going to bring the Israelites back here to worship me. And that is exactly what has happened. And in fact, this is a very, very significant time. The Israelites are going to be at the foot of Mount Sinai for almost a year. The rest of the book of Exodus, all of the book of Leviticus, and the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers are all from this point on at the the foot of Mount Sinai. So this is a nation defining meeting with God and a long one. And so the first thing that God wants them to realize is this, who they are. Have a look at verse 3. Then Moses went up to God and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, this is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Two things. He wants them to remember what he has done. They are defined. Who they are is based on what God has done. And notice once again what God has done for them. He carried them on eagles' wings out of Egypt. He saved them from the clutches of Egypt. Now, why eagles' wings, right? Well, eagles back in the day, well, today also, were, were caring. They would care for their weak young in beautiful ways. But also, they were ex- they're extremely fierce birds. So God is saying... I cared for you when you were weak and helpless. I saved you. I am a fierce warrior who saves you even though you are weak and helpless. 
Put your hands up if you like Tolkien, you know, The Hobbit and uh, all that kind of thing. There's a couple of you. Well, you guys will know that uh, the, the, the good people in The Hobbit and the, uh, you know, the, the other books that, that he's written, they actually, when they're at their weakest, when they're looking that everything is, is terrible, when, they are, when it looks like they're going to defeat, be defeated, who rescues them? Eagles. Eagles swoop in and save the day. Tolkien uh, was a great reader of the Bible and what he is doing there is he's he's trying to say, trying to give us this metaphor or point us back to the metaphor or the person of God. That God is a God who when everything is going wrong, when we are weak, he is the God who comes in and saves He is the God who saves. But notice the second image here. He says in verse 5, Then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. He he says, think about all the nations, all the great nations, Egypt and all, all the other ones, right? It's you I chose to be what? My treasured possession. That Israel, you are not this just a pathetically small country in the middle of the desert. No, you are my treasured possession. I love you that much that I could have chosen a a greater nation or, or a more prosperous nation. But no, I chose you, you little Israel, to be my treasured possession. I wonder if your place was burning down tonight. I, I, hope, I really hope it doesn't. But imagine if it was. What, would you, what was the one thing that you would get? What's the one thing that you would take out? For some of you guys, it would be a photo. A photo of you maybe and your parents or your family. Other people, it would be an heirloom. Other people, it would be something that you have bought and you saved up for, I'm not sure. But why would you get those things? Well, you would get those things because you love it. You love that thing so much. There's a sense in which you you are defined by it. And so you would rescue it because that is your treasured possession. Here, God is saying, Israel, you, you are my treasured possession. I love you that much. You are so precious to me. Now, what I want you to do is keep your thumb in Exodus 20 or Exodus 19. I want you to flip back with me or flip forward with me to 1 Peter 2 verse 9. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. In 1 Peter 2 verse 9, Peter quotes this part of the Bible that we've just looked at. And he says that if you are a Christian, this is true of you. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Peter is saying, just as God said to the Israelites, you are my special possession, God says to you, you are his special possession. That if you follow the Lord Jesus, you are so, so amazingly special to God. 
I don't know if you feel special. I don't, I don't know if you have been brought up in a way where it doesn't feel like anyone thinks you're special. Maybe you just feel like you're just a person who serves everybody else, but no one considers you special. And yet God looks down on you and he says, guess what? You are my prized possession. You are so precious to me that I sent my son, the Lord Jesus, to die for you, to win you back, to purchase you. Can you see how special you are? See, see when, when you think, when you wonder of your worth and you will, what do you go to? Do you think of your achievements? Or do you think of maybe the money that you have or the friends that you have? I think if you're a Christian, you should come back to this and to go, well, I may be unsure of my worth when I just think about myself, but God is not unsure of my worth. He sees me as his special and prized possession. And imagine if how your life would change if every day you reminded yourself of that fact, that you are God's special and prized possession. Wouldn't your confidence go up? But also wouldn't your humility go up because you realise you are not God's special and prized possession because of what you have done, but because of what Jesus has done for you. Who am I or who are you? Well, if you follow the Lord Jesus, you are God's precious possession. You mean so much to him. He loved you so much that Jesus died for you. But here's the second question. What are you to do? Well, flip back over to Exodus 19. And let's have a look once again from verse 5. He says this. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Who is Israel going to be? They are going to be a kingdom of priests and a whole nation. And you probably think, well, that, that's kind of defining who they are. Yes, it is, but there's a job here. There's tasks here. Let's have a look at the first one first. A holy nation. What does holy mean? We don't really use it so much today, but a holy basically meant set apart. That Israel was meant to be set apart and different from the, from the nations around them in a moral sense, but also a, a, a precious sense. That, that they are God's holy people set apart to do his will. See, it's a bit like this, and this is the best analogy I could come up with. I'm sorry about this. But when I was a kid, my mom had a special pair of scissors. And it was a special pair of scissors that that you were only allowed to use. Actually, I never used it, but she did when she was cutting fabric. Now, the one time that I used to cut paper with those special pair of scissors, I heard about it a lot because those scissors get blunt, right? And they are her special scissors only used for one specific thing. They are her treasured scissors, I guess. They are set apart for one role. And here Israel is set apart for one role. They are meant to be God's holy people. But also what are they meant to do? They are meant to be a kingdom of 
priests. They are a group set apart for God's services or God's service, being his represent representatives to the world. He's saying you will be a group of people who will bring the knowledge of me to the world. And we've already seen that, haven't we? Didn't we see that last week? As Moses told Jethro, a Midianite priest, what, what Yahweh had done, what God had done, and Jethro puts his trust in the God of the Bible. What God is saying to Israel, that's your job, to speak of me to the nations, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Once again, 1 Peter 2 verse 9 says, If you are a Christian, this is you also. You are a kingdom of priests. You are a holy nation. You are set apart for a purpose. What is that purpose? First of all, holiness. Holiness means that you are, because of what Jesus has done, that you are going to be different from the people around you on, on a moral level. That they're going to be, people are going to see something in you that is different because you trust the Lord Jesus. How does that work? Well, think about this. In your job, in your relationships, how are you going at loving and serving others, at putting other people first, just as Jesus loved you and served you? I remember meeting a, a lady at a church at Newtown that I was going to when I was at Bible college, and she came in, and um, she, she was a bit flustered. And uh, she, was, she said she was nervous coming to church, and I said, you don't have to be nervous. Um, Excuse me, everything is okay, but can I ask you, why did you decide to come to church? And she goes, because my boss. And I was like, okay, I'm all in. Tell me about your boss. And she said, my boss is the only person at my job who would apologize when he messed up. He wouldn't make excuses. He wouldn't try and cast the blame. He He would always apologize. And then he was the only person that if something went right in his department, he would praise everybody else. He said, she said everyone else, what, what, what they did is, when something went wrong, they would blame everyone else or blame the boss or blame everyone. They wouldn't take blame from themselves, but he was different. And when, when something went right, they would go, yeah, because I'm a great leader or something like that. And then she said, asked him, why are you like this? Just blown away. She saw it for six months and she... And he said, it's because I'm a Christian. And she thought, I better go to church to check out who these Christians are. If you want to be holy, figure out how you can love and serve the people around you. Put other people first. But also, what are we meant to be? We are meant to be a kingdom of priests. 1 Peter 2.9 says, we're meant to declare the praises of him who has bought us, who has, who has paid the, the ransom for us. Now, can I just say, I think this is very hard. It, it seems like we're meant to de- declare the praises to, to the world, and yes, we are. But some of us here work in hostile situations that if you were... Uh, if, if you're an out-and-out Christian, you would be ostracized. 
Or, at the very least, if you're an out-and-out Christian, you would feel a bit kind of a bit of a geek or a nerd or something that you would feel rejected, maybe. How do you do that in a hostile world? Well, I would say start with small things. Start with very small things. When someone talks about something going really good for them, maybe, maybe a friend of theirs was sick and they miraculously recovered, or maybe not even miraculously recovered, they just recovered. Maybe you just start saying, well, thank God for that. That's all. And as people hear you thanking God for so many little things, they hear you praising God just with those two words. Maybe when someone shares to you a, a big struggle that, you're, that they're going through, maybe, maybe you can say, well, I'll pray for you. And that's it. I don't think Peter is, is trying to say, hey, when you're on your lunch break, get out your Bible and start telling them about Jesus. Now, if you do that, more power to you. But most of us aren't like that. Why don't you just start in small ways, thanking God, and when the opportunity comes up, asking them if they could pray for you. And I dare say what's going to happen over time, that people will know you're the Christian. And they will come to you when things are tough. And it's generally when things are tough that, God, that people look again at God and you will have opportunities to share your faith. Start small, because as Paul Kelly said, from little things, big things grow. What are you meant to to do with your life? You're meant to be a holy people, a people who is set apart for singing God's praises in small ways and big ways. And lastly, who do you serve? Who do you serve? Now, now, can I just say, I dare say so many of us, when, when the Bible reading was being read out, you just thought, man, this is kind of weird. There's all this smoke and fire and, and you can't go up the mountain or you're going to be killed, all this kind of stuff. And, and it just feels so, so foreign, doesn't it? And, and can we just admit that on first glance, the, the picture of God here is not an appealing one. It kind of is a really harsh and blunt view of God. But can I just say, it's actually really important to come to grips with this God because this is God, the true God of the Bible. And it's actually better than you think. If you think, man, I really don't like this God, can I explain why I think that is? But also why it's important that God is exactly who he says he is here. Have a look at verse 9 with me. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. God is going to speak in such a way that if you're on the mountain, you would hear him. There's thunder and there's lightning. There's all these different things. But did you notice how... God says to them, they're not allowed to come up the mountain. Israelites aren't allowed to come up the mountain, but Moses, you are. I just find that a bit weird, don't you? It's a bit like, imagine if the Prime Minister invited you to Kirribilli House. 
Albo invited you. He texted you. I don't know how he got in touch with you. But, but you got, got dressed up and you went to Kirribilli House and he said, oh, sorry, you've just got to wait outside. You'd be, well, what? wait out. You invited me. Oh, why can't? But I'm going to tell you why God does that. But let's have a look at, at some of the things that he asked them to do. Have a look at verse 10 with me. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes. Now, now the word consecrate is this word that says, make yourself ready to to experience God or to encounter God. You've got to get ready. And you've got to do that by washing clothes. Why is the washing clothes? Well, 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 keep that in mind. But this consecration and washing clothes is so important that it's mentioned three times. Verse 10. Have a look at verse 14. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Have a look at verse 22. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Three times God says, hey, you've got to consecrate. You've got to get yourself ready to meet with me. And then he gives them actually a similar warning three times. Have a look at verse 12 with me. Put limits around, sorry, put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No personal animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. Have a look at 20, verse 21 again. It says this, So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so they do not force their way through to see the Lord and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves or the Lord will break out against them. Have a look at verse 24 with me. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord or he will break out against them. Three times he says, Hey, people, you cannot come up. You cannot come up because you will die. And notice how they're going to die. It's not someone's going to grab you. No, it it is done from afar because even the people who touch it, they can't be touched. See, what God is trying to say is this. God is trying to say who he really is. That he is a holy God. That's the point of the washing. That as they're meant to wash themselves, they're meant to realize that they are polluted with sin and they needed to be washed spiritually to come before God. And so it's a symbol. The, the, the consecrating that they do to get ready is once again a symbol of the fact that God is holy. Because in the Bible, God is perfect, morally perfect in every single way. And that is not us. God is absolutely lethally opposed to sin and evil. But if if we're honest with ourselves, that's not us. We're kind of cool with our own sin and evil most of the time. Think about lying, for example. Don't you hate it when somebody lies to you? 
I mean, I mean just, just doesn't it boil your blood and you want to call them out? I can't believe they lied. But, what? but when you or I lie, oh, well, I kind of had to. Uh-uh. It was a complex situation. I had to do that. Or, or what about when someone, even though they are wrong, doesn't admit it, blames everybody else, but everyone can see that they're wrong? But don't we have a hard time admitting we're wrong? See, we are very, very comfortable with our own sin, with our own evil. We justify it all the time. Which shows you how when we come before a holy God, there's a whole big gap between us and God. I think there's three things that we've got to remember as we think about a God being holy. First of all, God's holiness means that he's not made up. I mean, think about this. Would you make up a God who, who, who does this, who acts like this? No, no you wouldn't. And, and in fact, one, one of the things I'm an ancient history buff, I, I've read a lot of the, the, the accounts of other gods. And what they are is just a little bit better than normal humans. They tolerate and they do the same things that humans do. And yet our God is very, very different. He is so much more holy than we. He is perfect morally. You could not make this up. And if you think about the God, when when we think about God today, so many people have a God that is just a little bit better than them. And yet this is not the God of the Bible. You couldn't make this God up. Second of all, God's holiness makes sense of the passages where he seems harsh. Have you ever read the Bible and you, you've read, read something and God does, God wipes out a bunch of people? You go, well, why is that? Well, why does he do that? Why, why is he so harsh? Well, the answer is God, God's holiness is lethal. That there are going to be some times that, that a sinful person comes into his presence and does something wrong and God says, you knew better. You shouldn't have done this. And punishes them swiftly. The reason why we find that harsh and we don't like it is because, once again, we're very comfortable with evil and sin in our own lives. See, it's a bit like this. I don't know if you've ever gone gardening and you've, uh, or, or you've worked out in dirt or something like that and you've got a bunch of dirt all over yourself. And, and you see on your, on your arm you've got a very, very small pebble that you never knew was there. You were just working at it. It doesn't even bother you. But imagine that pebble getting in your eye. I, I mean, that would really bother you. I mean, you'd, you'd spend everything that you could do to get, out, to get it out, Right? Because that pebble is irritating to your eye. It's not irritating to your skin. Sin and evil is not irritating to us. It's like having a pebble on our skin. But to God, sin and evil is like having a pebble in our eye. It is so, so irritating to him. And God deals with it. Lastly, Here's the third point. God's holiness means there is a massive gap between you and him. And this whole section is meant to say that. There is a massive gap on a moral level between you and I and God. 
and that is because of our sin. And this passage is meant to make you feel that. This passage is not meant to make you feel warm and fuzzy. It's meant to make you fear because of the big gap. So it's a bit like this. A number of years ago, uh, my family went to London and we went to uh, Buckingham Palace because my daughter was so into Frozen and she wanted to meet the Queen and princesses and all that kind of stuff. So we went to Buckingham Palace. And I'm not sure if you've ever been to Buckingham Palace, but when you go there, you get a little kind of Walkman that, that, you know, in each room you can play a different section. And there was this one room where the Queen met everyone and it was all covered in gold. And I can remember it saying that it's meant to intimidate the person coming in. It's meant to show there's a massive gap between the Queen and anyone coming in, any foreign dignitaries, to put the Queen kind of on the front foot or now the King, right? But every room had that kind of vibe. Every room showed that, hey, the queen is up here. We are way down here. It was interesting. My daughter went up to uh, one of the attendants there. There's a bunch of uni students who were just looking bored. They were just in every room kind of making sure that no one sits on anything or touches anything. Well, my daughter, uh, Emma, at the time, she was about five or six, and she went up to one, one of them and said, oh, can you tell the queen that Emma Christensen is here to see her? And she goes, oh, oh no, no, sorry, um, no, one, no one sees the Queen. And then Emma goes, yeah, but um, I came from Australia. And she said, well, a lot of people came from a lot of places, I'm sorry. And I had to say to Emma, hey, there's this big gap between you and the Queen. Like, you can't just rock up. And this passage is saying there's a big gap between us and God. We just can't rock up to him. But here's the beautiful thing that the God that we couldn't get near on this mountain has come near to us. The, The God who is there on the mountain became human in Jesus and came and met you and I in our sin. He does not say, hey, clean yourself up. And then I will love you. No, he says, I love you. Therefore, I will clean you up. Jesus comes and he totally breaks down the wall between you and God. He deals with your sin because he loves you. Can you see how precious you are to God if he does this? And not only that, all through the Gospels, but also in Galatians, the Bible says that we can now call this God on this mountain, Father. That Jesus has so dealt with your sin. This holy God has dealt with your sin so much that you can come to him and call him Father without any fear whatsoever. Oh yeah, God is scary. But if you trust in him, you trust in Jesus, you have nothing, nothing to fear. Because the sin that God's lethal holiness was so dead against has been put to death in Jesus. The sin that blocked you from God has been dealt with completely. And now you are totally safe with God 
and you are totally loved by him. At the start of this, of this sermon, I asked three questions. Who are you? Well, well, the Bible says that you are God's special possession, bought with Jesus' blood. What are you to do? You are to be a people who lives a life like Jesus and takes small and big or whatever opportunities you have to tell the world about him. And who do you serve? You serve a holy God who has dealt with your sin so that now you can know him and be near him and call him Father. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you make the big questions of life. Who am I? What is my life on about or what am I meant to do? And who do I serve? You make them so clear. Lord, I pray that we would walk away from here being more encouraged and inspired to live for you, to live out of our identity, to live out of the task that you have given us, to be your people. Lord, I pray for those of us here um, that feel like they are not special. Lord, help them not to hear the words that may have been said to them or the words that haven't been said to them that they long for. Help them to hear the words that 1 Peter 2.9 says that they are, if they trust in Jesus, God's special possession. Lord, for those of us who are feeling like they don't know what to do with their life, Lord, help us to hear that we are to be holy holy people who love and serve others, who speak of what you have done for us. Lord, for those of us who are weighed down by our sin, when we think of your holiness, help us to remember that the God, you who are holy, has come near to us in Jesus, dealt with our sin so we can now live.